Um, but we're going to go to the Word together to Psalm 40, and we're going to talk about what it means and get a picture a little bit of how to wait upon the Lord. And as you're waiting upon the Lord, due to uh, the way you're waiting upon the Lord or the response that you have when God has you in a time of waiting, what that can be a sign of, how it can reveal maybe the nature of your heart and what's going on within. So let me again read this passage, Psalm 41 through 4, and then we will pray and uh, go into the word. Psalm 41 through 4. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to this time of word, to the time of study of your word, and we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon it. I pray for each individual here that the soil of their heart might be prepared for the good seed. Lord, I pray for your grace upon me. I ask and pray, Lord, that your word might go forth in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would simply use me as a tool, but that I would not in any way block the message that you would have for your people. I pray, Lord, that as we study this passage together, we might be encouraged and challenged and prepared for the week ahead, for the day ahead, for whatever that you have for us in this coming year. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for the time that we could be in your word, for the freedom that we have in this country to approach boldly your throne in public without having to fear uh, loss of life or a loved one or property. Lord, this is a great blessing. And few across the world today that are meeting and worshiping you have that blessing and so we don't want to take it for granted. Thank you and praise you for the day you've given us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Psalm 41 through 4. So let's get a little bit of context and understanding of the text and the the position that David was in. This is a psalm of David. The position that David was in when he was writing this psalm. That's going to set us up... (coughs) That's going to set us up for how we need to approach this psalm, understanding of the context in which it is written. We see in verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And we see from the second half of verse 4, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. We see David was in a, a situation. He was unsure of the direction that he needed to take. We're not sure what he was going on, what was going on in his life. But it appears that it's some sort of difficulty of soul. And it appears that it's within and not from without. We don't have any mention here in this psalm of some sort of physical ailment that he's going through. We don't have any mention of the enemies, maybe Saul, something of going on in his life that are attacking him. We just see that he's going through some struggle. And he's, there's this temptation to go in this struggle. There's a, there's a temptation to not wait upon God, verse 1. And instead to go astray after a lie, which you see in the second half of verse 4. So this is, the, this is the position that David's in when he's writing this psalm. And this is pretty much, I think, the nature of most of the Christian life. That you're in a periods of waiting upon God. And the most of the Christian life is in a waiting periods. We're waiting ultimately for Christ to return. 
But we go through these positions, these times of waiting, and we wait and we wait. Sometimes it's a few hours, sometimes it's a few months, sometimes it's a few years. Sometimes it's an entire lifetime, depending upon the situation. And then you see God work. And the question is, what happens during the waiting? But most of our waiting is from within. It's very rarely seen by somebody else. The culture that we have in America is very much a facade. You know, as long as you wear the right clothes and you drive the right car and you have the right business, or you, it appears that you're doing all these things. You have the right online personas, the right amount of friends on Facebook, whatever the culture of America says should be the makeup that we have that everyone else sees, then it appears that you're okay. It's busy. Our culture is busy from dawn to dusk and then from dusk to dawn. Everything goes very, very quickly. There's massive studies done on media, how you have your have most teenagers now have their phone and then they don't turn it off at night. They slide it under their pillow and the text goes off at 2 a.m. and they pull it out and they respond to the text. It happens all over the place and people don't are now suffering from loss of sleep. And then you go into school and these kids are falling asleep. We see it at Life Dynamics all the time. They can't sit for an hour. It's impossible. They can't sit for an hour without stimulation and pay attention because they're constantly moving. Things are flowing. It's such a fast society that we're in. So we're not really appears from the outside waiting. But what's going on in the inside? Well, the inside is a mess oftentimes. There's turmoil. And we don't. We all know this. You can look in your own heart and see it's sometimes the outside may look good. And I would often say that your outside may look good, and we judge people by going, hey, man, he's, he looks like he's got it all together. Therefore, he must be experiencing the joys of life. And someone who doesn't look like they have it all together must, like, must be not experiencing the joys of life. But the inside, it's a mess. It's icky. It's sticky. It's this constant thrashing about. There's a constant wondering, is this the right decision? Did I talk to that person the right way? Do they like me? What about the future? What happens if? What happens if I didn't? There's this constant talking to yourself. There's this constant turmoil within trying to figure out what is really true and what's going on. But nobody else sees that. This is the inner turmoil that David's going through when he writes Psalm 40. And if nothing else, the culture of America should lend us to understanding why David's writing this psalm. Because we should understand it even more. He didn't have the busyness that we have. And we have it in a great capacity. So we should be able to understand David's uh, situation, the inner struggle that he's going through to bail upon waiting upon God in whatever situation this is that he's been and to go astray after a lie. And the assumption that the lie is, second half verse four, is there is something outside of God that's going to satisfy or going to fulfill or going to resolve whatever their inner turmoil is. That's the base of most of all of sin is a temptation to say, hey, outside of Christ, unbelief, outside of God, outside of Christ and his work on the cross and what he's promised you in Scripture, there is something that is going to satisfy. Don't wait upon God. No reason to wait upon his ways. There's better. There's there's an answer outside of what he would have in Scripture. So what we're going to look at this morning is David's response, how he waited And then due to his response, what his response looked like, the sign that that shows us in Scripture 
of the condition of his heart before God. So let's first look at how David responds and the effects of that response. Verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. There's two things I think we have to see. Number one is you can wait patiently on God. You can wait upon God and not wait patiently. Let me say that again. You can wait upon God and not wait patiently. So let's look at some definitions. Wait, definition of wait, would be stay where one is or delay action until a particular time or until something else happens. So something else is supposed to happen. It hasn't happened yet, and you're waiting. You're staying in one place until that happens. That's waiting. What's patience? The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Two different things. One is standing still, and the other is the attitude that you have while you're standing still. So the first thing I want to look at is you can wait upon God and not wait patiently. You can wait on God with a rotten attitude. You can grit your teeth, drag your feet, and just grumble and mumble against what He's having you wait on, and you're waiting on God. You're not waiting patiently by any means, but you're certainly waiting upon God. But we've got to be very careful. Because that develops, as we saw in the first uh, sermon today, first light, that develops bitterness. That develops anger. That develops a bad testimony to the world around us of what God's promises are. And no, they're not really true that God's going to be with you. They must not be. Because look at that guy's attitude. Man, he is a picture of mumbling and grumbling. I can't believe God has me in this situation. When is he going to fulfill his promises? When is he going to resolve the situation? Let's look at two passages of Scripture just to remind us. And we could go all over Scripture, but we're only going to go to two of God's, uh, the fact that God is working and we can wait on Him. Here's number one. Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Truly God is the only one that we can wait for. And we'll go to, you can go all through Scripture and see proven examples, but look at Psalm 18. This is David again. And this doesn't prove that God alone is who we're to wait for. I'm not sure how many other passages of Scripture would assist us. Starting in verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, to my God I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Watch this. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones... Coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He drew from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy 
and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Second Kings 7. What I want you to notice in this passage <clears throat> is that oftentimes the things that we put our trust in, and we see this in Scripture, put not your trust in princes or your confidence in man, you know, those who put their trust in chariots and horses, things in our lives that we think can fulfill other than God or save us. Oftentimes, those things that we put our trust in are the very things God uses to drive us to Him. Because they fail or they are turned on their head. You see this in Second Kings 7. Watch this. Verse 6. What we have here is Ben-Hadad has sieged Samaria. And this is in Elisha's life. And he's put a siege around them. And everybody's starving to death. You see that in the first, ha- the first couple verses of 7. There is uh, very little food. And people are selling tiny bits of food. Dung, really. For monstrous prices. Everyone's starving to death. And Elisha comes in and says in verse 2, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, I'm sorry, verse 1, Elisha says, Tomorrow about this time a seah of the fine flour should be sold for a shekel. So a ton of food sold for a little, two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then we see what happens in verse 6. Syrians are surrounding everybody. They uh, can't. Nobody can get out. Nobody can eat. But there's four lepers that are sitting outside the walls. And they decide, hey, I'm going to die here. Or I can wander over to the enemy camp and beg for food. And maybe they'll give me a little something. But I'm going to die there if not. So, worst is history. I mean, we're going down here anyway. Let's just go over and see what happens. So they arose, verse 5, at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians, what they put their trust in, chariots and horses, hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. God saved them. They waited upon God. Some did. You see back in verse 1 and 2 that the, the captain of the king didn't, didn't believe. He did not wait well. And what happened? He ended up losing his life. God alone is the one that we wait on. God alone is the one that we can trust will solve whatever the difficulty is as we're waiting on him to do whatever he, we are waiting on him to do. So there's the first point. In verse two, in verse one is of Psalm forty is you can wait on God and not wait patiently. The second point in verse one, if you are truly waiting on God alone, then you will not or I will not wait in silence. If I'm truly waiting on God alone, then I will not wait on in silence. You see this. He inclined to me and heard my cry. There's this crying out that's coming from within. It may not be seen from without. You see that in Hannah's life in the Bible. Samuel's mother. She's got this inner turmoil. She's crying out. Nobody else sees it. Eli looks over and looks. it appears that she's, she's drunk and her crying out to the Lord. So there's this coming out of prayer. So other people may not see it, but there's this crying out to God. Now, there's something in the Bible. There's something 
often when we look at theology, called an antinomy, where you have two different things that appear to be contrasting, but actually fit together. And we see this in Scripture. So I want to look at uh, one, a couple of the passages, because it says in Psalm 62 that we're supposed to wait in silence, and I'm saying you're not supposed to wait in silence. So what's happening here? Psalm 62. Look over there with me. Psalm 62, verse 5. And there's, there's other passages that show this. Psalm 37 shows this. Psalm 27 shows this. Psalm 62, verse 5. For God alone, on my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. So for God alone, on my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Those who truly wait upon the Lord will not wait in silence. How do these two things that seem to be contrasting fit together? Well, they're both from Scripture, so they're both right. They're not contrasting. And the, the key is, when you are waiting, your soul should be silent to anything else outside of God that you would be seeking to draw you out of that period, to solve the situation, to resolve whatever the difficulty is. To God alone, your soul is crying out. And you see this. There's this question, really, of who are you crying out to? It should be to God. Everyone else, there should be silence. There should be a lifting up and a prayer to the God, to God. Hebrews 4.16, we know we can approach the throne of grace boldly to find mercy and grace and help of time of need. And we are to do that in times of wondering. But in your, in your waiting Whatever your situation is, and we're all probably in some sort of waiting period, in your waiting upon God, what are you doing? Are you crying out to God? I know rarely that is my first, is my first inclination, is to cry out to God. My first inclination is to go to someone else. Maybe I go and, and ask a wise counselor. Maybe I'll Google it. Maybe I'll read a book. Maybe I'll, I'll just wait a little longer. Maybe it'll solve itself. I rarely go to prayer first. This is the culture, definitely, of America. Gerald Sarawaji, a couple of weeks ago, and you can go find his sermon there on our website. I would encourage you, if you've not listened to it, listen to his sermon on prayer because it was very powerful as to the culture of America and the difficulty that we have to go to God in prayer. And often, because of the, the speed of our culture, the now of our culture, everything's now, 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 we delay prayer because prayer is slowing us down from getting the answer that we want. Right now. And if we stop and pray for five minutes, we probably could have done a Google search and that would have solved it. We wouldn't need to pray. And then we would have wasted that five minutes. So why pray when you could get your answer right around the corner? And we constantly think it's right around the corner. All we got to do is wait just a hair longer, do one more search, ask that one other person, boom, we got the situation resolved. Because we want it done now. Why have to wait? There's no need to wait if we can get our answer now. But that's not the way God has set it up. And God doesn't answer oftentimes right now. He can, and he does, but that's not his normal mode of operation. I want to remind us of the five reasons that Gerald said men do not pray. He said, number one, the advancement of technology. What is the first thing we do? We Google, we 911, we do all these different things, but prayer is not the first thing, but it should be. Number two was his reasons on why men don't pray is skeptic of the supernatural. We tend to think that God worked in the past, but not now. We must do it ourselves. God may have saved the people from the Syrians 
with a, a wind, a sound. But no, that was, that's the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Number three, modern prosperity. Prosperity can sink into your soul and make us feel as if we don't need God. How do you pray for provision when the pantry is full and the job is successful? Praying for our daily bread. Gerald said, look at history. Times will probably change when the prayer for our daily bread will truly mean something. He meant in America. Do we really believe that if the physical cliff, economy, etc., all of it collapses, God will take care of you? So number one, the advancement of technology. Number two, skeptic of the supernatural. Number three, modern prosperity. Number four, time pressures. Just time. Busy, busy, busy. We don't have time for talking to the nearest person. You go into the grocery store and I'm guilty of this. You're scrolling down the aisles. Oh, know somebody there? Woo! Go a little quicker because I got to get done. I got to get through here. I got things I got to do. We don't want to stop and, and chat with that person. It's We're quick, 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 quick. Now, now, now. Time pressure is number four. Number five, we live in an age of instant response. Prayer is not always instant and often takes time and patience. It often takes time. It oftentimes doesn't make sense as we feel like we should act now. God's ways are not our ways. And he has commanded us to pray and we should do that well. Now, if you are waiting and you're waiting patiently upon God, there are some blessings that can come. And David shows these, and I'm going to give four of them, and we could probably extrapolate a lot more from this scripture than just four. But there's at least four here that we can look at that would become that would come as blessings. So, first of all, there is a picture uh, of this in scripture. Let's go to this first in Exodus 14. There is a picture here in the Bible of someone who waited upon God, or a group of people who waited upon God and got to see. Uh, God work and then the, and, and partook of the blessings that come from that came from waiting upon God. Exodus fourteen. See the picture here of the Israelites as they're as they're coming to a wall, and the wall was the Red Sea. And what do you do? Well, we have no choice but to wait upon God because we can't go back because here's the Egyptians hot on our tail. We can't go forward because here's the Red Sea. Not many people could probably swim. And if you could, you couldn't get all your stuff across. What do you do? Here is what we do. Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And they were. They waited in silence. They made their petition before God. Moses took out the rod, strikes the sea. And what a day that must have been to see a sea split in two. And walls form. And it wasn't muddy. It was dry land. And you walked out and were able to see it. What a blessing. They could, and yet they forgot it almost as soon as they crossed to the other side. But what an amazing testimony of someone who waited upon God. has got to see God work in miraculous ways. And it seems to be in my life that as I'm waiting upon God, the very moment I jump ship over and try to solve it myself was probably the fraction of the second before God was willing to go. Here it is. Let me part the Red Sea for you. Let me show you how this is going to work. Let me see. Let me allow you to see the salvation of me as your God. Psalm 40. What are some blessings that can come as we wait upon God? He drew me out of the pit of destruction, verse 2, out of the miry bog. 
and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. First half of verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. First blessing I think that can come is he not only saves me or saves you or saves us from the pit, he sets us in a new place. It's like just a father who sees a situation going with their son or their daughter and they're in danger and they swoop in and pick them up, but they don't just pick them up, they put them in a better spot. They set them on a firm place. What is a rock? A rock is immovable. It is strong. It gives us the analogy of a protection, something that we can hide upon, something that is a shelter. We see that in Psalm 91. God is our refuge and our fortress. It's easy to wait upon God when you know the outcome. And we know the outcome. He has conquered sin and death. And he has sent us. Look at the, uh, look at the, the title of this psalm. For help, my help and deliverer. He has sent us the Holy Spirit who is our help. Who is our deliverer. And we know the outcome and we have his help. He can set us upon that firm rock. The rock of his promises. Who he is. That will never allow us to have our feet shaken. So go from shaky feet to secure. That's number one. He not only saved you from the pit. He set you in a new place. Number two. He replaces the cry for help with a song of praise. You see in verse one. He heard my cry. Beginning at verse three. He put a new song in my mouth. He replaces the cry for help with a song of praise. If you, in your time of waiting, jump ship, seeking resolve to whatever you're waiting on outside of God, you'll never have this. You'll never have the joy of seeing God work. You'll never have the joy of seeing uh, God work in a mighty way. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And then seeing God work and you're able to respond with a song of praise. For number three, he will get the glory alone. Second half of verse three, many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Not only will he get the glory alone, but it says in this verse that many will see God's glory. Many will see God's glory. How many of you have read the biography or the account of Oswald Chambers? Raise your hand. Oh, you got to go home and read the account of Oswald Chambers. We have, when most people hear the name Oswald Chambers in your mind, and rightly so, would go to My Utmost for His Highest, uh, a, a compilation of his sermons that his wife put together um, on all the things he, different, he spoke about. And Oswald Chambers was an amazing preacher. And he has an amazing testimony of this time where he sought the Lord and, and then God gave him a wife. Interestingly enough, it, just to... To see how God always brings the perfect two people together. He married a woman who had struggled with bronchitis when she was very young. And so when she was very young, instead of going out of school, she dropped out of school, allowed her older siblings to go to school and assisted her mom. And she developed an ability through her studies in shorthand. Now, shorthand, for those who, that's a lost art in our culture, that's a simply a way to write shorthand. You're writing short little words uh, for whatever I'm saying, if you were able to take shorthand, you would be taking notes. And you could take notes for every word I said by using dots, dashes, slashes, all these different things. Well, she developed an ability to take shorthand at 250 words per minute. That's faster than almost anybody in here can speak. And so in the seven years that they were married, 1910 to 1917, 
She took notes of every single one of his sermons. He died in 1917 due to a complication of the removal of his appendix. And from 1917 to 1927, took her 10 years. She transcribed all of her notes, and that's what we have as my utmost for his highest. 1927 is when it first came out. Amazing man, but what few people know is that for four years, while he was in seminary studying to walk for the Lord, he had an intense darkness that was upon him. He knew he was a believer, but he never heard from God in those four years. Very few times. He just, he had this groaning of his soul. He, he, he didn't, there was just a, such a spiritual darkness. And people, the, the one or two people that actually knew that was going on, this was going on in his life, said that the, really the only reason was God's word and the testimony of believers was the only reason Oswald Chambers did not take his life due to the severe depression that God took him through for four years. But what happened? He waited four years, darkness, my utmost for his highest came out of that four years of darkness because he sought the Lord. And when God turned the light back on, when the clouds parted, when the light once again shone in his heart and encouraged him, all the learning he had done in four years is what we now have is my utmost for his highest. Maybe one of the most well-read Christian devotionals that we have. When we wait on God alone and he does the rescuing from that time of waiting, he alone gets the glory and oh, what a glory that it is. So number one, he not only saves you from the pit, he sets you in a high place. Number two, he replaces the cry for help with a song of praise. Number three, he will get the glory alone. Fourth one, the ultimate happiness one can experience is trusting in the Lord for salvation. Verse four, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. We know according to the Beatitudes that a blessed man is ultimate happiness. That's the way that word is translated. So the ultimate happiness, you could read this as, the ultimate happiness that a man could experience is when one puts his trust upon the Lord. Your trust alone for God to save you. Not only save you from the situation that you're waiting upon, but saving you from sin and death. Christ alone is the only one that can save us. We read this in John 4. Go to John 4. I'd encourage you to study it in your time, in your, in your private devotions. Go to John 4. Read about the woman at the well who comes to the Lord and she's tried so much. Uh, explicitly, she's tried sexual addiction. She's tried so much to satisfy in this waiting upon God that only God could satisfy. Only Christ was the living water. And she comes to him and she finds that, that ultimate happiness, that ultimate satisfaction for her soul. So we see this morning so far, we've looked at uh, what David's in, how he's responded, and the effects of his response, the blessing that came with his response. But I want to look as we close here a little closer to what that, how he responded, how that was a sign of his walk with the Lord. In the book uh, written by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, which is essentially just um, Martin Lloyd-Jones's sermons on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, how to talk back to yourself. In that book, there is a quote by a professor Whitehead, and this is what he says. Religion is what a man does with his own solitude. Let me repeat that again. Religion is what a man does with his own solitude. Now, remember we talked about at the very beginning of this, most of the waiting that you're going to do is going to be inward waiting, private waiting. No one else sees it. What do you do in your silence? What do we do in our solitude of waiting? Now, what is religion? 
Let's go to uh, James 1. James chapter 1. What is religion? Most probably have this memorized. Just as a reminder. James chapter 1. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's religion. Religion is simply an outworking of faith and who you have your faith in. It's simply the fruit of the tree. That's all religion is. So, in the Christian religion, you could go through Scripture and define what the outworkings are of the Christian religion, of the Christian faith, of the Christian relationship with God. That's religion. It's an outworking of what you see or a barometer of who you see or what you see as true. Something that you can base your life upon. And then whatever you're doing based upon that faith and belief, that's religion. Professor Whitehead, religion is what a man does with his own solitude. So religion, essentially your religion is an outworking of your relationship with God as your Savior. Many Christians, I believe, having, have an improper view of God. They have an improper view of who God is, an improper view of what he has done for us, and therefore they have an improper view of who we are and our standing before God due to who he is and what he's done for us. You've got to be really careful because if you get off on those first two, you end up off on how you approach your life, how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how the improper view comes into play. If you realize that your status before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is that you are a blood-bought son and daughter of the King, if you realize that you are blood-bought by what He has done, nothing by what you have done, Therefore, you will understand that there is nothing that you can do to remove or change what he has done. But so often, so often, we don't realize that according to Ephesians 2, you have been saved by grace through faith. Nothing you have done has achieved that salvation. Therefore, If you are a true believer, there is nothing that you can do that can take away the affections and love and passion that God has for you as your Abba Father. But what do we do? Oh, man, I sinned this week. Ah. Man, I got to get back on there. Go, 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 go. I got to do, 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 do. Now, doing is necessary. Going is necessary. Working for the Lord is there but not so that somehow you can earn back favor that you have somehow lost by sinning. That's not the case. You've never lost it because you never earned it. He gave it to you. 
He poured it out upon you so richly and so freely. What do we do in our solitude? What do we do in our solitude is often our religion. Our religion is oftentimes, I can't sit quietly. I gotta have something. I gotta be doing. I can't rest before God. There's gotta be, I gotta work harder, do more, so somehow I can earn God's blessings and He'll get me out of this situation. You follow what I'm saying? You're waiting upon God, but you can't really wait quietly because you've got you to gotta find the magic token that's going to somehow earn God's favor and get you out. No, it's not the case. You've, you've not earned anything, but he's freely given you everything. He's poured out in abundance his love and mercy and grace upon you. If you are a true believer, there is not any amount of religion that can be practically worked out that would in any way, shape, or form earn you any greater love or affection from God. Now I'm going to repeat that again. If you are a true believer, there is not any amount of religion that can be practically worked out that would in any way, shape, or form earn you any greater love or affection from God. Of course, in this path, you're going to walk. You're going to slip. Your heart's going to be prone to wonder. But His view of you His love for you, His affection for you does not change one iota. It's still the same. Now, you have consequences to your sin and that consequences may temporarily block you seeing His affection and His love for you. You see this in Scripture? If you harbor sin in your heart, God will not hear you. So there's there's that consequences. But, But on the other side, He's not changed. He's still who He is. His love for you has not moved. Because he saved you. He bought you. You're his. And he wants, just like in Luke 15, 20, we have the the picture of the prodigal son, just like that father. He's waiting. He's waiting. He he wants that return of relationship. And his love is just growing and has grown and is greater than we can possibly ever imagine. Now, but a sure sign, this this is what I want to get to this morning. This is what David responded in the correct way when he was waiting. And a sure sign of whether or not you're approaching Christianity as a religion or as a relationship with God is really how you respond in that waiting period. When you, in the Christian walk, you're waiting upon God and you, you fail in that moment of temptation, that moment of weakness, that moment to believe a lie, second half of verse 4 in Psalm 40, and go astray, when that happens... What do you do? Because that's a pretty good sign of whether or not you're following a religion or a relationship. If you repent of your sin and place once again your hope and trust in the Lord as the fullest satisfaction of your life, that's a pretty good sign you're in a relationship. If you, number two, feel sorry for your sin, but seek in every possible way to cover it up and move as quickly on as possible to the next thing, that may be a sign there's a religion there because it's a work thing. Just get it, get it out of the way. Move, move on further because I've got to get this back here so that God doesn't take away His blessing from me. I've got to push it back so that I can move over here and somehow again earn God's favor. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The culture of, of America uh, frowns on any confession of sin because that's a, that's a declaration of weakness. You must not be the man that you should be because you've got 
we've got weakness. But the gospel tells us the confession of a sin is sign that you where that you are where you should be, that you are a blood bought son and daughter of the King, who has been given the understanding of the freedom we have in Christ through His work on the cross. So you're you're having a sorrow for sin, but what joy in being able to confess that sin, and finding and seeing once again that full relationship with the Lord. So in your time of waiting. How are you responding? Professor Whitehead says what you do in your solitude, what you do in your waiting is a sign of your religion. So how well are you waiting? And in those times of waiting, when you have failure, how do you respond? How do you wait? As a believer, sin does not and will never remove the love and affection that God has for you. I'd encourage you to to analyze how you're spending your time waiting. Are you seeking to find satisfaction in something other than what God has for you? Are you afraid to rest quietly in your time of waiting because you feel that you must do something or God will not shine His favor upon you? And we saw this morning in First Light, go to the Scripture and study the Gospel. See what He has done and how He has worked upon your behalf. If your life about, if your, is your life about the relationship with God the Almighty that has been bought and paid for with the highest price ever known, the death of the Son of God? If so, your religion, or as Professor Whitehead put it, what you do in your times of solitude will manifest the blessings that David described in verses 3 through 4a of Psalm 40. If you're about the business of that relationship, then in times of solitude, it'll be easy. To, it will be easier to wait. The question will not be, The question will be easy. Excuse me. The question will be easy. Of course, I've got to wait upon God. It will not be necessarily easy to work that out. That could be very difficult. You see that? Jesus Christ in the garden. He's waiting upon his father. And oh, that was difficult. Bleeding. Bleeding out of his sweat pores. As he waited and groaned and wondered and sought, God, would you save me? Is there any other way? And yet he, he submitted to his father's perfect will. So I encourage you this morning. Psalm 40, a great passage of defining, are you waiting upon God and are you waiting patiently? And as we're waiting, are you willing to wait long enough to see God's uh, salvation, to see his blessings? And if you, if you fail in that waiting, how are you responding? Are you confessing that sin and in rejoicing that God is working in your life? Maybe using that time of waiting to sharpen you? to draw you closer to himself, to flesh out an area that needs to be honed, that needs to be worked on, that sin area that you may not have seen? Are you rejoicing that God's shown you a blind spot? Or are you just, oh, push it quickly as fast, hide it as quickly as possible so that you can somehow then earn God's favor? You can't do that. You can't earn God's favor because you, you, you never earned it in the first place. He gave it to you.